Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen land of the Rwandri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge their continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. It is Wednesday, the 19th of February. Mm-hmm. How are we all? Good. It's just you and I. It's just you and I. Moment. Moment. <laughs> I went, I went coming in. She's been caught up in the rain. It is, is hectic. It's hectic outside. Yeah. yeah. To put it mildly, yes. To put it mildly. Like, mm-hmm. we can't really hear it in the studio because thankfully it's soundproof. Yes. As you would That's hope. That's what we would like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's been a pretty hectic morning. Yeah, we were actually just talking about the, um, the flooding, slash flooding water all over the, uh, country. And, yeah, uh, the uh, extremes from as everyone is talking about at the moment, I think. Yeah, but like particularly in New South Wales, yes. have, you know, there was there was fires, and now Warragaba Dam is basically full. Yeah, having just... I think 400 mils of rain or something mm-hmm. in one day. It was incredible. Pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, how's how's our week been? Oh. We're just actually discussing yeah. every week. We're like, how our week's been? It's just like nothing exciting is happening. Yeah, but 30 just... seconds until the show, we're like, what did we do this week? <laughs> we got ready for the show. Of that's, course, that's, that's the exciting part. Yes. Um, but speaking of the show, we actually have a really packed show on today, so we might actually jump straight in. Uh, so at 7.15, we've got Ruby Soho, who's been speaking with Music Matters on 3CR. Then at 7.30, we've got Kim Ho, who's a playwright for a play coming out tonight called The Great Australian Play. So he'll be coming in to speak about that. Yeah, and then at 7.45, we have Jane Morton, who's coming in to speak to us about the local government bill mm-hmm. of 2019. Um, and then at 8 o'clock we have Matt Kunkel, from, who is the Director of Migrant Workers Australia, and he's just coming to speak to us about the extended migrant travel ban by the Morrison government. Yes, and then at 8.12 we have Tess from the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association speaking about the upcoming committee elections. So it's a packed show. It We've is. like continued our trend of like <laughs> keeping the shows very, very packed this year. So we're, we're, we're standing strong for 2020. Oh, your listeners are very lucky. <laughs> Um, but before actually jumping in, we're going to play a quick song. It's called Mary Mary by Melanie Horsnell. Uncertainty, Monday morning luncheon, our philosophy, magazine trends indicate to me, buying and selling dangerous. Don't move so fast, so you had a rush of
Kalpa Festival is back for five days of music, dance, visual arts and food, celebrating Southern Italian and Mediterranean culture. Featuring, direct from Italy, the voice of Enza Pagliara, Vittario Mucci, Tarantula Garganica and the pick of local acts including Alara, Delirium, Santa Taranta, Opa Bato, Arte Canela, Cavisha Mazzella, plus the launch of the Melbourne Taranta Orchestra and more. Melbourne Taranta Festival from the 11th to the 15th of March. Full program and tickets available online via trybooking.com and tarantafestival.com.au. Abalati. The Taranta Festival is a 3CR supporter. The Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival... February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter. I am delighted to welcome Ruby Soho here to 3CR Music Matters and uh, it's going to be a great big weekend for you, Ruby. Tell us about yourself and about it. Well, my name is Ruby Soho. I have been working on this record, uh, Confessions from the Looney Bin, for the last uh, three or four years. In uh, It's been in the making. I've suffered from bipolar disorder and I've had a hard time uh, living with it and as a result of the time that I spent in the psychiatric unit I ended up writing all these tracks and I will be launching them this Saturday night at the Spotted Mallard in Brunswick and I have a whole bunch of friends that I've got got in to come and do that including Emily South, uh, Spiral Perm and Emily Olmet and it's going to be a real fun time. It will indeed. Now, uh, it's a whole complete album, not just an EP. There's a lot of tracks here. Yeah, there's, I think, eight tracks worked together into, yeah, my masterpiece. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. And uh, it's kind of brave, kind of, you know, important for the wider audience to uh, hear about your story, I think, because... It affects lots of people in lots of different ways and, and putting it out there, I think, is a really important thing to do and yet, you know, it's pretty rocking. It's pretty rocking, yeah. It's, uh, it was hard at the beginning, but I, if I didn't have my guitar, I, I wouldn't have made it through my mental health battle this far and it's a beautiful tool to get get through it. I'd recommend anyone having a rough time to pick up some kind of instrument because it's been the saving grace in my life. And uh, your guitar has a name, I think? Uh, yeah. Well, they've all got different names, but um, the oh, the red guitar that I play is the Red Witch, and the one that I'll be playing this weekend is called Jimmy. 
Sweet. And uh, just in case people are thinking, Ruby Soho. Now, I, I know that name, and it's not just from a Rolling Stones song or whatever it may have been. A ra- rancid song. A rancid song. <laughs> oh, maybe I'm showing my age there. That was Ruby Tuesday, wasn't it? Yeah, that was Ruby I'm wrong. Tuesday. Okay. We'll take that back. <laughs> They may know you from a rancid song, but you're also part of other bands around town? Yeah, I play in another band called Bitch Diesel. Um, yeah, we've been a couple of witches on some broomsticks, playing some guitars, having a pretty good time most of the time. And scooting right around the world. Yeah, we just got back from a tour through Europe, which was pretty special. And um, we've just finished re- recording a record in Baritz in France, and that was a really amazing experience. So that will be another launch coming up. Yeah, definitely looking around April, May, June, somewhere around that bracket. We'll have another record out and something else for me to feel very chuffed with. Congratulations, times two. And then the uh, the other good thing you do is uh, a long-time announcer at our sister station, PBS. Yes, I'm off to do my radio show right now, actually. <laughs> yeah, I love doing PBS and um, community radio is super special, which you know about, Jane. Ruby's given the game away. We're doing a pre-record on Tuesday, <laughs> so... Uh, don't think that she's doing a show on uh, PBS on Friday afternoon and you have to turn off Music Matters. It's all okay. Just <laughs> tune in to uh, Garage Land, 8 till 10 on PBS on Tuesday night for more of the Ruby Ho- Soho story. But beyond that, uh, Spotted Mallard. Spotted Mallard, yeah, this, this Saturday night. Uh, with, oh, we've got a couple of other, we've got some mental health advocates coming in to have a chat. My, um, brother and sister who have been my advocates for, during my mental health journey have gone on to do, um, more, more with their mental health, uh, experience and journey. And they are coming to give a chat at the gig about, um, being the carers of somebody living with a mental health issue that's, that's pretty tough. So that'll be a nice, nice rounded thing. My whole family are turning up, so I'm pretty, pretty excited. Um, and we've got, uh, DJ Turbo Lucy on the decks. So they'll be dancing all night as well between the amazing bands, which is Emily South, Emily Ullman and Spiral Perm. And so we will uh, play a couple of your tracks. Which is the first one you'd like to introduce? Uh, My Mind is the track that kind of speaks for itself, but it is the track on the album that talks about the wickedness of my mind and being trapped in sort of um, institutions that you don't want to be at.
the first track from Ruby Soho's Confessions from the Looney Bin release. That was My Mind. And uh, we'll go straight into another track. What will this be, Ruby? We'll play a track, Howlin' at Midnight, which is about um, surviving bipolar or surviving the experience I've been through and then finding a happy ending at the end of it, which is yeah, meeting the love of my life. So... It all turned around for the best after all these hardships.
Ruby Soho with Helen at Midnight from Confessions from the Looney Bin. And uh, people who empathise, feel triggered, whatever it may be with any of this, there is always Lifeline to call. Or uh, do you have any other favourite go-tos? Um, bipolar life, if it's um, bipolar that you're suffering with. Or, yeah, I'd say Lifeline is the biggest thing. You've got your GPs and your GP is probably the first point of call if you're um, having a hard time and then they can refer you on to psychologists and psychiatrists and all these special people that help us keep our minds working in the right way. And a big thank you to Ruby Soho for coming in to talk to us about this very exciting release and this very exciting launch. And so for people to access it, it's just through Bandcamp, is it? You can get it on Bandcamp or Spotify or iTunes or all over the web. It's available. So So Ruby Soho. Bandcamp's the best. (laughs) Excellent. Confessions from the Looney Bin. Uh, what you hear is what you get kind of thing in terms of uh, that title. It's it's an honest and uh, really raw account of uh, experience that is now safely behind Ruby Soho and uh, she's going to be out there on stage at the Spotted Mallard celebrating that. I think uh, we would all do well to uh, participate in what will be, I think, a pretty rocking and joyous and and really kind of a fun event, you think, Ruby? Yeah, it'll be a good time, a real cool time. Celebration mode indeed. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and that was Ruby Soho speaking with Music Matters. Up next, we've got Kim Ho for our next interview, but first we're going to play a song called The Day by Bali. I was walking along in the park When I saw him first he was looking like an angel Then in the moment of his eyes Shining strong inside I was longing for a kiss Just so pure and neat 
to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and that was The Day by Bali. Up next, we have our interview. It's just coming up to 7.30, and we have Kim Ho in the studio. So Kim Ho is a playwright and writer who has an upcoming play coming out tonight or tomorrow, I believe, at TheatreWorks called, very cheekily, The Great Australian Play. Um, Welcome to the show, Kim. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. So I wanted to ask, uh, throughout sort of your play so far that you've always been really interested in this idea of land and exploring land and connection to landscape and what place really means and so in 2020 you're exploring this concept through the great Australian play which is your upcoming play so what is this piece about and what was the prompt for writing it yeah, I think that uh, thing about connection to land uh, has really sneak, snuck up on me. Um, I don't set out to try and write um, plays, uh, I guess, exploring landscape per se, um, but for some reason everything I write starts um, <laughs> starts reflecting those um, ideas. Um, I started out uh, trying to, I think, with just like an earnest sense of I want to write an important play that speaks to the moment and that like says like it does good work um, and make makes a difference or something, which I think is admirable, but it's also a lot of pressure for like a, a young writer to um, have to carry. Um, and as I was trying to do this and to, to mine uh, Australian history for some kind of like good. Um, resource material to base a story on. I was finding it increasingly difficult uh, and increasingly more pressure. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to write, like, the stupidest thing ever um, and deliberately kind of self-sabotage and and push that to an extreme and see what happens. Mm. Um, Yeah, so I I guess uh, what's emerged is a kind of, like, um, David Lynch nightmare scape, mm. um, romp into, um, into colonial Australian mythology. And it, which, of course, like, um, colonial Australia has a very antagonistic relationship with land. Mm. Um, so that's kind of, uh, um, emerged out of it, this kind of, uh, us against the landscape, which is like completely opposite to how it should, how it should be. Yeah. And I mean, something I find quite interesting with your work is this idea of, Layering. You kind of talk about layering of lived experience that have occurred on the same land, the same space and place. And sort of in the Australian context, there's been layers of indigenous history, colonial invasion, and more recent mm-hmm. migrant waves. And 
you've used this narrative structure a few times in, in some of your plays. So through this kind of process, what are some of the more unanticipated connections and learnings that you've made in your own mm. understanding of place? Um, I think, I think that there's like different, um, we, we place different value on what place means, um, in terms of the natural world and like natural landscape. Um, so Great Australian Play is based on an expedition to the center of Australia, um, where this guy called Harold Bell Lasseter convinced everyone in 1930 that he'd found a gold reef mm-hmm. or like a, this weird kind of gold mine, uh, in the middle of, of the outback. And everyone was like, oh, that sounds legit. Um, but, um, It's so interesting that uh, they saw that reef as like a um, a resource to be mined, Mm. Um, and it it doesn't. It I think has like metaphorical and almost spiritual resonance with colonial Australia as well. This like thing that we it's out there and we're gonna get it and Mm. we're gonna own it and we're gonna mine it. Um, But when uh, when we were talking about the um, the play and um, chatting to um, indigenous folk as well. Um, there was all this like knowledge um, that had been passed down orally um, that I couldn't find in my research. Mm. Um, and uh, one one kind of um, thread was that the um, the reef is out there in some way, um, but it like uh, no no one would actually um, lead any any non-indigenous people to it. Mm. Um, it's like uh, the. The, the kind of respect for landscape in a non-capitalistic um, paradigm um, is is like exists at odds with this idea of like the pioneer adventure, like um, yeah, the, this this um, thing of like the land is not just a, a resource to be mined. Yeah, that's interesting. And so with this play, you've quite ambitiously, as you sort of pointed before, called <laughs> it the the Great Australian Play. And so, what do you see as so significant? within the place themes to kind of warrant this slightly tongue-in-cheek title. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like... Uh, and I've tried to deliberately create something that is and isn't significant. Um, like, the play's, the play's title is tongue-in-cheek because I'm poking fun at my own uh, attempt at writing something, like, capital I important. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's something that a it's lot of... It's kind of a reflection writing, on the whole playwriting industry. Yeah, like for sure, industries. for sure. I think yeah. a lot of young playwrights feel like to make their mark um, in quite a difficult um, industry, you've got to, like, write the next big thing. Um, I also, when I was writing it, I was at uni, so this was my major work. But um, my previous work, Mirror's Edge, had won the Patrick White Playwrights Award, um, which is administered by Sydney Theatre Company. Um, so I was suddenly, like, my name was being associated with one of the greatest playwrights and novelists uh, this country has ever produced. Um, and I'm just, like, writing in the shadow of this, like, old white guy, but also, like, a fiercely intelligent and, like, extraordinary um, writer. Um, so I, I think I felt that burden to write something like great, um, even, even more. Uh, so yeah, I think, um, try, trying to kind of explode that and be like, I don't know if there is any such thing as great Australian play, mm. um, because, uh, 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 until such time as like Australia is great. a great <laughs> country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the other themes that this play explores is we kind of touched on it before the foundations and origins of colonial Australia kind of the DNA of modern Australia if you will 
And so how has working on The Great Australian Play helped you form an understanding of this DNA of modern Australia and of sort of, in quote, nationhood? Um, the approach I took with this play was um, in, in terms of tackling this idea of nationhood. It's such a massive topic um, that I, I tried to not think about it too much. Um, I wrote, I kind of tried to free myself from like having to write uh, to stick to the Laster expedition as a narrative and wrote, wrote a bunch of scenes, um, I guess from my subconscious, um, scenes that I felt thematically or in, in some tangential way resonated with those ideas um, of, of nationhood and ideas of that expedition, the folly of going out to find something that doesn't exist um, or that you're not going to find. Um, so what came out of that for me was a bunch of different, like, more abstract images or scenes or vignettes or whatever um, that that speak to something that I feel deeply inside myself uh, is is Australia um, in and different kind of uh, versions of Australia um, and I think I I struggle to articulate um, those scenes and like what they actually mean but they they get to something in my gut rather than my brain about um, who we are. So I think, um, yeah, I, I've been trying to bypass intellectual um, intellectualizing about um, what, how, how we describe our nationhood. Um, so what we're putting on stage is not um, my hot take on who Australia is. Um, I'm trying to kind of create like a feeling of what we are or mm. who we are. So why do you think it's like now's the right time to be to be doing this? Um, well, part part of that process of like creating these like surreal abstractions is to hopefully create something that's um, I won't say timeless, but that uh, resists like it's it's for this moment in time in the zeitgeist, and uh, and then it'll be like we'll move on to something else. Um, but I think uh, I'm I'm really worried about the resurgence of the the alt right mm. um, and and uh, and like I guess. The um the way that larrikinism and like oh she'll be right is being weaponized almost as a political tool and in, mm. in uh, particularly uh, in the cons- media construction of Scott Morrison um this like he he can't hurt a fly he's just a awkward dad um is is like such a kind of it's using these um these little like familiar uh, lies maybe mm. in, in Australian cultural kind of mythology um, to make something very dangerous seem very um, marshmallowy. Yeah, it's kind of, it's obscuring the truth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess it's like, if not now, when? Like, yeah. I think the conversation about um, about uh, not um, about sovereignty and, um, and I guess healing as a nation uh, about like looking taking a long hard look at ourselves mm. um is is going to be perennial like it's a it's a question that we keep having to come back to absolutely um and finally what was the the research process like for the whole play because i imagine there was there much content to find on Lassiter's Reef? yeah there's tons but it was it was overwhelmingly colonial mm. um so i was looking um back at the uh, the novelizations of the Lassiter expedition um the memoirs from um from the men on the on the expedition um there's there was like an aboriginal tracker who accompanied them um but uh but there's like no reference or no information about him because the explorers didn't 
care enough to to record that information. Um, what I did find really interesting was a personal connection, like a family connection to the story, which felt very, very uncanny. I went up to the Mitchell Library in Sydney um, and I opened the first book and it's all kind of, you have to like stay silent. Mm. Um, and I saw my great-grandfather's name uh, in the memoir of the leader of the expedition and it turns oh. out they were best friends. <laughs> um, and And... <laughs> Like, my great-grandfather put 20 pounds into this expedition, this gold expedition, uh, and he also encouraged Fred Blakely, the leader, um, to write his memoir of the events after it had happened. And that um, he wrote it, Blakely wrote it on my great-grandfather's typewriter. So the manuscript, like, the initial manuscript became a family heirloom. <laughs> I got a photocopy of my mum's cousin and was able to, like, use that as a as a source of wow. research It's like, well. as soon as you find all this, you're like, I have to write Yeah, it. yeah, it was like, <laughs> you, you've got to do it. Um, yeah, but also, I think, um, as much as I was, like, really enjoying that kind of research, uh, there came a point where I was like, I just have to free myself from, from it, mm. uh, and from historical accuracy, because, like, the, those, those explorers, um. It's not sorry, historically accurate in itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah they're, um, I, I think their, like, whole expedition is kind of based on, like, a big lie. Mm. Um, so my play can be too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very much looking forward to seeing it. When, is it being performed? Where is um, it? So we're opening tonight. Oh, we're, we've got our first preview tonight. Opening mm-hmm. night is tomorrow. Right. We run from the 19th to the 29th of February in TheatreWorks. Wonderful. Well, um, I would definitely give it a spruik on the show. Thanks very much for coming into the Thanks studio, Thanks so much, Kim. Rob. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Uh, before our next interview at 7.45, we've got another song called Things Just Worked Out by The Deans. <laughs>
your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. And you're listening to 3CR. A quick hello, it's Idwin. I, I I was running late. Um, as I said to Jess and Rob, <laughs> I set my alarm for 6.40, which is very different from 5.40. Yeah, there is quite a big difference, but it's so fine because we've all done it before, I'm sure. <laughs> I have. Definitely. Anyway, um, we've, Rob's just left the studio with that mm. amazing playwright. Yeah. So excited about Blown it. Blown away by that. Yeah. Sounds incredibly creative. And we, we think we might go as a team, which I think, is yeah. super cute. <laughs> Bonding session. Bonding session uh, with a satirical player. But right now we're on to our next interview. Uh, today we're actually going to be discussing the Local Government Bill, which was established in 2019 with the aim of providing a contemporary legislative framework for local government in Victoria to enhance democracy, council transparency and responsiveness, responsiveness to community and state. This week, however, the bill faces proposed amendments uh, led by Labor's Adam Sumerick. State Minister for Local Government. The amendments are due to be voted either they were yesterday or today. I've got to double check the hand side for that. 
Uh, but they're facing, the amendments are facing heavy criticism. And we have Jane Morton from the Deputy Governor uh, Darabin Climate Action Now Group to explain some of the consequences of the proposed changes. Good morning, Jane. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so your concerns centre around the fact that the new amendments could favour large political parties over other forms of representation by moving to a single ward model rather than the multiple ward model, which we currently have in a lot of councils. Could you kind of explain to us what the significance is of this bureaucratic adjustment? Yes, look, it, it sounds like nothing much. Mm. Um, but I'm part of a local group, Darabin Climate Action Now, and we're the first council in the world to declare a climate emergency. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we could do that is because we've got three wards. Each of them have got three councillors le- elected from them. And it just means that if you're a smaller party, like the Greens, or if you're an independent, you've got some chance of elect- being elected because with a third of the vote, basically, Absolutely. you can get elected approximately. Preferences make it more complicated. Um, the opposite case is what they've had in Burundara, mm-hmm. which is um, around Canterbury. Mm-hmm. And they've always had, or for a long time, they've had single-member wards. Single-member wards, yes. So basically, because slightly more than 50% of people across Burundara vote Liberal, mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of it's sort of a winner takes all. So gotcha. they've got nine wards, and seven out of nine of those, I think, last time were won by Liberals. Right. So instead of the other forty nine or so percent getting some councillors, mm-hmm. um, they get almost none. It, yes, it's a, broadly speaking, that's the problem. And my particular interest is from the perspective of getting. Council climate emergency declarations up. It'll just make it that much harder. Gotcha. Um, mm. And yet there is sort of the foot in the door for emergency action. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm Deputy Convener of, of Darabin Climate Action now, mm. which is like a local cl- group. I'm also very heavily involved in the Extinction Rebellion. Yep. And the thing that Extinction Rebellion has been really campaigning on, as well as the climate emergency action it's just that our political system is broken. Yeah. Um, and it's incredibly hard to get emergency action. And, and this is another way to limit yeah. it. Well, local action was our main hope. Yeah. And gotcha. it's like that door is just about to slam shut. Right. And my question is also, as you said, you live in Darabin. Darabin is a bit of an exception to the rule in the way that they, as you said, were the first to declare a climate emergency and also have extraordinarily progressive and really engaged community works. Could you kind of tell us your lived experience of having this multiple ward, yeah, in your local community? Well, it's not like it was easy. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yes, it's true that we actually now are... um, some of the most climate-concerned constituents around the country, but mm. we've had a local climate group going here for 12 years. Right. Actually, it's coming up to 13 now, mm-hmm. and we've campaigned in climate elections, in, in elections trying to make them climate elections. Um, by the time we got the climate emergency through, it was actually the third election that we'd campaigned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, look, at that. it's not like it was easy, but at mm. least it's possible. Yeah, and. Sure. And the thing that we did that made a difference, which now lots of people do in their local elections, is we approached candidates 
um, while they were in election mode from <laughs> all the parties right. and asked them if they would pledge to support the declaration of a climate emergency mm-hmm. at the local level, but also using the council to pressure state and federal government. And yes, half of them signed up. So that was uh, about half of the Labor candidates, pretty much all of the independent candidates and pretty much all of the Greens candidates. So we ended up with seven out of nine councillors gotcha. um, supporting the declaration of a climate emergency. And yeah, they did. They, they pushed it through at the um, first council meeting. Mm. And backing up your criticisms of the proposed amendments have been the Victorian Electoral Commission and two-thirds of Victorian councils, which have also come out against these amendments. Uh, I was wondering if I could kind of get your, like, have you been in discussion with these guys? What's been uh, communication between that? Has there been any? Look, really, I haven't been aware of this issue. It all was happening last year. I wasn't aware of it. It's part of a bill that's got hundreds of pages in it. Mm. And I think the vast majority of the community weren't aware. So these bodies, which are the ones with the greatest expertise in democracy at the local level, mm. and, of course, the councils themselves, saying, no, no, this is just not a democratic system. In fact, Borondara has been campaigning for years to change theirs. Um, and we're just on the point of succeeding. So, look, the people who know and understand this stuff have been opposing this and pushing for multi-member electorates for years and years and years. Hmm. But this bill has just been quietly proceeding with hardly anybody aware of it. Right. And basically, it, it, it's to the advantage of Labor and Liberal. Mm-hmm. At the moment, unless something quite dramatic happens, they're just going to vote together yeah, to push this through because it's just going to entrench a duopoly at the local level. Of course, and the, Munici- the Municipal Association of Victoria has actually come out and said that uh, these changes would need to be delayed by about 12 to 18 months to enable full examination of the issues, including like costs, community impacts and other intended consequences. Uh, I suppose, what do you think would need to be done to kind of adjust this bill so it works for communities to kind of solidify that multiple model ward model? Well, that would certainly be preferable. I think you know, at all levels of democracy, mm-hmm. um, the more you have proportional representation, mm. the more the smaller voices are heard. It mm. actually also means that more women and more from minorities of every kind um, get elected. It's just more democratic. So, yes, yes, if you were wanting to entrench anything, you'd want to entrench the multi-member ward mm. model. Mm. And just... As, as you mentioned, on a local council model, uh, local councils have been one of the leaders in climate action in Australia on a, on a kind of government level. Uh, could you kind of talk to the importance of why, it, why it's so important why, that we protect local councils as an institution in our community and why this is a, such a threat to our daily lives? Because I suppose we don't really think about local governments. We're usually con- you know, distracted with either federal nonsense or state bureaucracy and that sort of stuff. But on the local level, it kind of it, things tick away in the background. So I, wonder, I was wondering if I could just get your, your thoughts on the importance of protecting this. Well, we have a problem with democracy as a whole. Mm. Um, we get to vote, but we get to vote... With a very, you know, between to choose between a very limited range of parties and candidates um, in elections that are heavily influenced by the Murdoch press, mm-hmm. and then we're sort of stuck with whatever these politicians decide for the next uh, three or four years. 
local government is the place where ordinary people can have a say mm. and it's issues like the climate emergency which is in danger of destroying our futures and destroying most living things on the planet where ordinary people have a view and most so far have had a chance of being heard mm. so you know we need to really restore or um, create a much more vibrant democracy a much more deliberative much more deliberative democracy where people you know can take part in people's assemblies citizens assemblies which are like jury duty with randomly selected people mm. and influence the really big choices of um, for our future and Local government is where we can try those things, where we've got some chance of bringing those things in and then pushing them upwards. It's much, much harder. Like the vested interest and the effect of money gets, well, it can be really bad at the local level with mm. um, local property developers and gambling interests and so on. But as you go higher up, the, the force and the size of those money interests gets harder and harder to defeat. So we've got to get the foot in the door at the local level. Mm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jane, for coming on and talking to us a little bit more about this issue. Now, uh, your action group has also emailed around a list of the different senators that were going to be voting on this today, so in the Legislative Council in Victoria, and we'll be putting that up on our website so people who do want to petition these uh, representatives can kind of get their voices heard and show their resistance. I think just to show that even people have noticed what they're trying to sneak through would be really effective. So just bring any of those legislative council people, any of them, um, just to show we're paying attention. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Wear your Radical Radio colours in one of 3CR's new T-shirts. The bright new design comes straight from this year's popular Radiothon poster designed by Aisha Tufa. T-shirts cost $30 to pick up or $37 with postage. So drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Call 9419 8377 to place your order. Or buy one online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts. Get Get one one now. now. Tree Project are a Melbourne-based organisation that have been replanting Indigenous trees in Victoria for 30 years now and we need your help. You can become a Tree Project member, a seedling grower in your own backyard or organise your friends to do a planting day. If you're a landholder in rural Victoria and would like to restore habitat on your land, Tree Project is keen to help out. We also offer sponsorship opportunities and take work teams for a planting day. Visit treeproject.org.au to learn more. A 3CR supporter. Julian Assange, the editor and founder of WikiLeaks, is facing extradition from the UK to the USA at a trial commencing in London on Monday the 24th of February. A public rally will take place where we can call on all parties involved to end the torture of Julian Assange. Let's help bring home Melbourne's own Walkley Award-winning journalist. If he is extradited, he faces a secret military trial and a likely 175-year prison sentence, if not the death penalty. Please be on the right side of history and join us on Friday the 21st of February, 6.30pm at Victoria State Library. Did you? 
edition rally is brought to you by Melbourne for WikiLeaks, proud supporter of Community Radio 3CR. The Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and changemakers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter. Hi, you're listening to 3CR. Now we're going to speak to Matt Kunkel, the director of Migrant Workers Centre. We'll be speaking to Matt about the branded, unwise, unfair and unnecessary migrant travel ban the Morrison government recently put into place after the um, coronavirus epidemic. On top of an already pre-existing 14-day travel ban, the Morrison government extended the ban by a week. This has proven disastrous for migrant workers who cannot return to their work, studies, families and homes in Australia. Hi, Matt. Uh, Hey, how's it going? Great. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Always happy to be with you. (laughs) Thank you. So, first question, just to break it down for us, can you actually explain to us, in your own words, why this travel ban is so unwise, unfair and unnecessary? Uh, Well, the coronavirus doesn't discriminate against people on the basis of their visa status. And it doesn't matter whether you're a permanent resident or a permanent visa holder or a temporary visa holder. If you're going to get sick, you're going to get sick. And unfortunately, this ban does discriminate in that way, and it's only stopping people on temporary migrant visas, on temporary visas from coming into the country. Uh, and it's just symptomatic of a government wanting to be seen to be doing something rather than actually doing something. And actually, it probably what it really shows is just the inherent racism of our of our government because I don't think it's any coincidence that the response this government has made to uh, the coronavirus is exactly the same response it's made to um, people trying to seek asylum mm-hmm. in Australia. Um, they've tried to shut the border. They've shipped people off to our you know, island gulag at Christmas Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really disgusting to, to show just the, the way that this government's dehumanised people like that. Definitely. Um, also, has the Migrant Workers Centre actually been in communication with affected individuals and... If so, I'm assuming you have. How have they felt and what are their main concerns? Yeah, so we have been in contact with uh, dozens of people, actually, from um, the region who got in contact with us before the internet was shut down in their area. Mm-hmm. Um, their, their big concerns, uh, one of them is worried about their cats, um, which I guess, um, you know, shows that these aren't just people that are coming in and out. These are people that have got long, extending, you know, long lives in, in Australia. Some people have been here eight years. But their biggest main concerns really are that um, their bosses have threatened to take their jobs from them mm-hmm. um, and that they're meant to start studying soon um, mm-hmm. and they can't go to class. Um, I think the National Union of Students was saying that they estimate that up to 56% of the um, international students of Chinese origin are still 
trapped in China, unable to start their study. Yeah, it's, it's just it's really heartbreaking. Um, what have public health experts actually said on this situation? So already on the pre-existing two-week ban, um, do they support it? Well, the World Health Organization, which is the big the big group that's kind of overseeing the global response to this, has actually said that travel bans are not the answer. Um, in fact, that they're counterproductive. Mm. But the head um, the head medical officer in Australia has um, obviously provided uh, advice to the government on which it's relying to make this ban. Mm. Um, but I did see the other day that the head medical officer has come out and said that people shouldn't be racist towards Chinese people and mm. they shouldn't um, they shouldn't be avoiding um, Chinatown or the you know. Chinese restaurants, but this is exactly what's happened because of this discriminatory travel ban. Mm. People are, you know, the, the government and those that are whipping up xenophobia mm. uh, and creating a much more, a very difficult environment for our friends in China. Definitely. Um, this, so leading on to what you just said, this also trickles, this whole thing just trickles down into a racial discrimination. There have been campaigns run by organisations such as UNICEF aimed at educating people globally to resist isolating and bullying individuals from affected countries. So have you actually found this... So have the people that you've spoken to found this to be a problem? Obviously, you've just said they have, but are they really worried about it? Well, the the people that we've spoken to are predominantly those in China, stuck Mm -hmm. in China. Um, The anecdotal kind of conversations around the Migrant Workers Centre is that many people are reporting... Um, you know, it's much easier for them to not have to sit next to someone on a tram, mm. but it's a very bad feeling, for example, to to have people give you a wide berth and walk around and not look you in the eye mm. and, you know, act- actively discriminate against you or actively avoid you in in, in general public. Mm. Um, we've had people report cases of being chased off public transport, for example. <laughs> we've had cases of people not being served in restaurants uh, to the point where they just had to get up and leave. I mean, these are the kinds of things that are caused when you create a fear and um, and panic about someone being pestilent or being dirty or being... I mean, this is the, all these sorts of things are hallmarks of... are classic hallmarks of xenophobia and racism, and it's uh, unfortunate that it's, you know, Australians have responded in the way that they have. Yeah, and this is just a byproduct of the Morrison government's travel ban. Yeah, this is what's happened. Absolutely. So, with our country heavily relying on the migrant workers, how uh, how are you guys advocating for a change to the visa process for the sake of future situations like this one of the coronavirus? Are you maybe pushing the government to lay out strategies and plans in case of future events like this one, or is like obviously it's <laughs> for the public to me anyway? It just seems like it's just a don't we deal with them when it happens? We'll be, we'll advocate our and ineptly cause racial discrimination by as a byproduct. Don't you think that maybe we need to push our governments to strategize and plan for this better? Is that what you guys are trying to do as well? Yeah. So I mean, this coronavirus is, is not particularly um, unheard of. I mean, there was similar situations with SARS and swine flu, etc., where you know quite nasty diseases have spread quite quickly, but. I mean, at the Migrant Worker Centre, what underpins all of our work is that all all workers, all people should have the same rights regardless of their visa status. Mm-hmm. Um, and in these circumstances, what we call on the government to do um, is to allow people with, with visas to come to Australia mm-hmm. and face the same health checks that you or I would face mm-hmm. if we came back to Australia. Um, that's what we're calling on the government to do. We're calling on them to lift this ban because it's not has no sound health basis. 
Uh, and if they continue to stand, they need to consider how they're going to compensate the people who are, they've got rents to pay, they've got other bills, they've got jobs that they're missing out on, and potentially they face coming back to a situation. Mm. You know, there are people, as I said, that have been here for years and years on, you know, several temporary visas mm. um, because there's no pathway to permanency for them, but they're caught out by this. So they're not only are they, you know, stuck in China, but they're isolated away from those communities that they've built for five or six years. So we just say... All workers should have the same rights regardless of um, their visa status and the government should lift the ban immediately because it's not... This this travel ban has not prevented a single case of coronavirus breaking out in Australia. Yeah, it's just in the, the science behind <laughs> the uh, results yeah. in it. It's just it's quite obvious. Um, just to clarify, though, at the moment, legally, a worker is actually allowed, to, allowed health checks with that visa or is that not... Is that like a T's and C's sort of thing? And do you know if they're legally allowed to do this? If who? Sorry. If the, the if workers are legally allowed access to the health checks, or is this just something that we need to keep pushing our government for? Oh, sorry. What I'm talking about there is when you come back from travel. From tra- there, yeah. Yeah. You you know they they put the heat gun over you. Yes. If yeah. Raised, yeah. Raised, <laughs> raised, et cetera, so. In the same way that if someone came back from, you know, if someone flew in from Italy or someone um, was flying back from their holiday in Bali, um, they'd go through the health, the normal health checks um, for, for, you know, for their health. Yeah. Um, the people coming in from China who um, should should be allowed to do the same, the same thing, and we should be treating people on the basis of their health needs, um, not having knee-jerk reactions and and and. and be- Blanket bans of people that, um, you know, uh, sectional bans of, of, of people who would just discriminate against on the basis of their visa. Okay, definitely. And so how can we help this cause? How can we help you guys out? <clears throat> um, I mean, it's, it's quite tough because these decisions are being made at the very top of government in the mm-hmm. cabinet. Um, but calling, I guess you can call on your local, um, your local members of parliament and, and, and voice your concern. Um, I guess the biggest thing you can do at the moment is reach out and show solidarity to the Chinese Australians and the Chinese migrants in, in the country at the moment. I think they're doing it quite tough, a lot of them. Um, so we need to reach out and do that. And then the next the next thing that um, will happen is once the travel ban is lifted, um, you know, there'll be tens of thousands of um, temporary migrants that will come back into the country. Uh, and we want to get as many of those together and, and fight off some of these bad outcomes. So where people have lost their jobs, who want to get together and organise collectively to, um, to win their jobs back, um, to win some form of compensation uh, and to ensure that those students who have missed the start of their term aren't, um, aren't uh, disadvantaged in any way. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Matt. No worries. Thanks for having me. You know, I was just thinking, like, in... Our regular lives. I have. I've been speaking to a lot of my friends mm. who do come from those backgrounds, mm. and it's just like the racism is palpable. Yeah. You know, one of my friends sneezed on a train, and everyone got Lots. up and moved. Yeah. It's that sort of. It's it's a chain reaction. Even at at my place of work, um, I have a, mm. a man who's on a visa from China, yeah. and he's not been allowed to come back to work for weeks now. And it's crazy because I think it's a brilliant point that this really does trickle down. Yeah. And those sorts of ignorances and hateful sort of ideologies it trickle does. down. Yeah, it, it is. It's a trickling down of racial discrimination from the government's poorly thought out decisions too. Well, we're going yeah. <laughs> to chuck on a song and then hit into our last interview for the day. This is for Fashion by Handheld and it's one of my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> 
what a great song. <laughs> you're listening to 3CR. You're in the studio with uh, Edwin and Jess. And we're coming up to our last interview for the day. So a few weeks ago, uh, the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Annual Conference 2020 ran. Long name, however, very funky, very funky conference. Uh, it gives platforms for different scholars, both kind of burgeoning and I suppose more formal, I don't know, senior, I suppose, uh, researching in the interdisciplinary field of critical race and whiteness studies. So we have Tess from the Australian Critical White uh, Race and Whiteness uh, Association here today to kind of talk more about this conference, what direction it is and why it exists. Good morning, Tess. Good morning. Good morning. Um, just for the sake of convenience, I am going to refer to your organisation uh, by its acronym, which is We've, we've figured out Aquasa. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and just starting the conversation, I just wanted to get your base definitions for what uh, critical race and whiteness studies entails. Sure. Um, cr- critical race, for me, is uh, a- about understanding that there's a whole heap of different um, racial literacies uh, that happen for many groups of people throughout the world globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if you look at it from an Australian perspective, um, there's quite a lot of things that happen in uh, my experience as an Aboriginal woman uh, that often get uh, ignored, I guess, within the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, uh, to focus on uh, certain things that are happening, some things that are happening uh, event-to-event-wise mm-hmm. or something that just happens regardless of... Uh, societal shifts and in the policy frameworks. Um, I think those sorts of things are really important to highlight that they have a critical race focus. And with regards to whiteness, well, I often sort of see whiteness as a, a, a neutral or default kind of position that a lot of people uh, go to. So that's how I understand whiteness to be. Right, and the conference seeks to, and the organisation I should say, seeks to network thinkers in this field as well as give them opportunities to develop their their theories, their ideas. What do you think is the power of connecting these thinkers through an organisation such as um, Aquasa? Look, it's huge. I think it's really important uh, because whilst this sort of field is quite established over in places like the United States, um, it is a growing uh, discipline, I guess, in in Australia. And so it's really important for um, lots of scholars, uh, both the emerging ones and ones that might sort of in an early career and beyond, mm-hmm. to have opportunities to get together and share their ideas, share their scholarship and um, feel a sense of connection that um, might not be felt, I guess, within the university space. So often when you go into universities and they don't really understand um I guess why there is a, a need for a critical race focus in Australia, mm-hmm. which gets back to the neutral position of whiteness, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's really important for us to be able to network and connect. And um, through our discussions the other day, you also mentioned something which I thought was great. It's this idea of um, intellectual capital that comes out of these conferences and just the, the contributions and developments of thought. Yeah, it's a... I mean, I mean, conferences are great because you do get a chance to share your ideas and hear who's on sort of similar pages to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, with something like uh, the conference, it was an, an opportunity for everyone in the room to be really on the same, uh, the, sa- the same platform. You're thinking about the same mm-hmm. ideas, but also there's a little multitude of differences within those ideas that can be shared and collaborated upon. So I think those sorts of things really do build a capital, I guess, in terms of... Uh, sense of community, but as well as that further work in 
producing great knowledge about critical race and whiteness. Fantastic. And talking about the conference, this year's theme was Racial Literacies and White Supremacy, Educating and Researching Together Against Racial Silencing, Racial Violence and Racial Capitalism. That's a hugely expansive topic. Uh, How do we (laughs) break down these different, I suppose, themes into the to to contribute to the conversation? I think often it's can be hard to sort of capture um, such a wide range, as you said, um, breaking the, the conference up into sort of different uh, panel sections that talk about some of these different ideas. And um, in terms of racial literacies, we hear a lot of, uh, I guess, rhetoric uh, that, that we feel is connected to race. Often there's a rhetoric of fear. Um, we're hearing uh, with currently with the coronavirus um, situation that there is um, sort of a fear rhetoric going around with regards to Chinese restaurants and, and things like that. So mm. uh, you, you start to begin to understand that uh, with regards to racial literacy, there's a lot of discourse out there that is actually quite negative and stereotypical um, according to race. Um, and that helps you sort of put those things into different uh, banners, I guess, of, of thought. Absolutely. It's funny you mention um, actually the coronavirus. We've just had an interview discussing the kind of emergence of racism that's been going on. And I, mm. I suppose especially in the context of this country where racism is rife and intellectualism is at times condemned, and this is a very academic conference in a lot of ways, how do, we, how do you think we shift these conversations out of a conference where thinkers like-minded like to congregate and into people's homes? I, I hate to say make these conversations accessible because that in of itself as a statement of the privilege that the audience mm. has. But I suppose within wanting to challenge my own assumptions and break down some of these attitudes in Australia, uh, how do we constructively discuss these issues with those who aren't versed in them? Yeah, it is, can be really difficult, I think. Um, and I think it's important to be able to take uh, these conversations from maybe an intellectual or scholarly space out into the pub, put mm. it that way. Um, and if you can begin to sort of have those conversations uh, in those places, it, it begins to sort of shift paradigms. And mm. I think those things can take a really long time. But with the advent of uh, so much digi- digital media now, I mean, mm. there's so many people on Twitter having these conversations, that is really helpful. But the other thing that we're trying to now do with the association is uh, maybe broaden the focus into looking at things that where we can sort of reach more people. So maybe through a through an artistic practice. Oh, okay. um, and yeah, with the conference, we actually had um, a wonderful uh, poet by the name of Desai uh, uh, come and do a poetry reading of um, God is a Black Woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know there was a, a great sort of strong focus in being able to translate some of these conversations out into community, into sort of activism and community roles, into sort of uh, you know for want of a better word, the person street, so that they begin to understand um, what we're actually talking about. Fantastic. And I suppose the other thing uh, that came out of this conference for me is that Australia is retreating into a little bit more of a white supremacist or whiteness position at the moment. And it, we're getting a lot of lip service through buzzwords such as diversity and intersectionality from our you know, politicians. Uh, but we fail to put that actually into practice. And in, in mm. this context that, that we exist in, the, this conference all be, almost becomes an act of resistance. Can I kind of get your thoughts on how important it is that we practice these events and support such thinkers in our community? I think it's really important and I think, um, you know, we're beginning to see 
uh, within the association a stronger uh, a stronger membership base. We're seeing people that are actually really wanting to have these conversations. I think that's indicative of people going, you know, enough is enough. We actually need to start doing some uh, some really important work here to, sh- to shift the conversation because it feels like we're almost going backwards in these conversations in Australian society at the moment. Um, and so I think we have to keep putting our voices out there as much as we can in all these different areas. So whether it's, uh, you know, people in community orgs um, that, that are doing some of the on-the-ground activist work, uh, you know, people in the street, you know, I have lots of conversations with family, extended family and friends about race and how they might see, we might have, see, have two, two, the same, the same instance happen, mm. but they see it from a completely different perspective and just mm. in a, in a gentle way trying to unpack how it might appear different for, you know, a person of colour, a person of, you know, from a different diverse background, um, I think is the important. And I, I still think that there's a lot left to learn mm-hmm. uh, and we have a lot of work to do. And so it's, it's time to sort of all organise and, and work out. Fantastic. And just finishing up, now you've been recently uh, appointed as, as a president of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association. Uh, what direction yes. do you want to take with this year into 2020 with the organisation? Um, well, we're hoping it's going to be a really exciting time. There's been some amazing work that's been done uh, through the session, um, you know, with past committee and um, mm-hmm. committee members. So we're really hoping uh, to build the space um, by broadening those conversations. Um, we're hoping to sort of extend uh, our understandings of uh, you know, whiteness as, as a structure that you know, we feel that quite permeates society. But, mm-hmm. you know, in looking at having an arts practice focus and seeing how we can reach more people in having these conversations possibly through um, that area. I think we could do some really exciting things. We're hoping to organise some sort of smaller events that might be more public rather than scholarly events, if that makes sense. And um, that means that we might get a few people who are coming in off the street that um, might come away with a bit more information than they did before they got there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much this morning, Tess, for joining us, and I will be um, shouting out to your website uh, after the interview so people can get online and have a look up of it. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. And that wraps up our interviews for today. Um, We had a pretty packed show. Pretty packed show. Jess, you have the flyer for the play next. Could you just give us those dates again? I do, yeah. So from the 19th to the 29th of February at Theatre Works in St Kilda, the great Australian play by Kim Ho, who joined us this morning on... Through Wednesday Breakfast Ooh. is putting on a great show. Super creative. Yeah, that's super exciting. Yeah. Uh, also following up, uh, unfortunately, I did check. I've been sitting here reading the hand side and the <laughs> minutes from our local government. And surprisingly, this is nice and hard to find because I'd like to bury it in the bureaucracy. Uh, but unfortunately, the local government bill has been passed. Mm-hmm. And so even more than usual, get on get on to those letters to your mm-hmm. local councillors and protest. Uh, the bill went into Vic Parliament yesterday afternoon. It was faced with uh, another amendment, which was voted down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can read the Hansard. People like um, MPs like Fiona Patton were very against it. Yeah, you can imagine. Um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so that's, that's the reality there. And the last thing I wanted to give out a... 
kind of shout out to is the subscription drive. Now, this did happen last week, mm-hmm. uh, but I just wanted to give one more kind of shout out to it. So what is a subscription? A subscription is a deeper engagement with the station, a deeper partnership with the station. Mm-hmm. If we're a community organization, it's basically uh, getting the community more and more involved, yeah. getting your voice more and more involved of what topics and issues and things we talk about mm-hmm. on the show. Uh, on all shows. So just a quick reminder that f- subscriptions can be $35 for a concession or pension. Uh, they'll be $75 for a waged, and they can be 150 as a solidarity subscription. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, these are, there's different ways you can subscribe. You can subscribe online at 3CR's website, uh, or you can give us a call on 94198377, and that will be oh, – what's the – we'll be open at 9. <laughs> Yes, what's the time now? Uh, 8.26. 8.26. <laughs> yeah, so just wait half an hour and yeah. then we'll be going. We'll, it's we'll, your time we'll, to shine. It'll be, it's your time to shine. <laughs> Jess, you weren't here this week. Subscription to the station, what does it kind of let you do? For me, it just sh- your support really allows us to fuel our love and enthusiasm for, you know, <laughs> getting up. Journalism. These. Journalism. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, it does. Subscription mm. is just showing your support mm. for the things that you hold value to. If you value us and you value what we do and what we bring to you, yeah, subscribe. And this will be the last time I mention it. I don't want to be that worm be in your that ear. So this will be the last time I mention it. Mm. Uh, but it is the last week was our big subscription drive. We are trying to ramp up the people, uh, especially in response to the political climate mm. we're living in which, as we've spoken to two people today, is, is pretty piss poor. Dangerous and, times. Yeah, dangerous times and the rise rise of political right mm-hmm. and racism and just, oh, there's so many issues. Everything and, we've spoken about today. Yeah, everything we've spoken about today. <laughs> so with that in mind, uh, with that very bleak lead out, <laughs> oh, my apologies. We always do that, sorry everyone, but it's, we have to do it. <laughs> we, have to, we have to. We have no choice. Um, yeah, with that, I'm going to play. Oh, look, we actually have time for a song, so I might play a song, and yeah, we'll get on with that. Thank you, and talk to you next week. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to three cr.org.au and get in touch.
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.